Hello, my name is Edward Collins and you are listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a new podcast series brought to you by UCD School of History and HistoryHub.ie. Today we're speaking with Alison Bigelow. Alison is Assistant Professor of Colonial Latin American Literature in the Department of Spanish, Italian and Portuguese and Affiliate Faculty in Latin American Studies at the University of Virginia. From 2012 until 2014, she was a National Endowment for the Humanities Postdoctoral Fellow at the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture at the College of William and Mary. Her current book project, Cultural Touchstones, Mining, Refining and the Languages of Empire in the Early Americas, reflects her diverse research expertise from her doctorate in English to her postdoctoral fellowship at the History Institute and the fact that she is now part of the Faculty of Romance Languages. Alison, you're very welcome. Hi, Edward. Thank you so much for having me tonight. You're very welcome. So today we're speaking about the science of colonial silver and rethinking the history of mining and metallurgy in the early Americas. Now, you've said previously that the history of mining in Spanish America has often focused on reductive notions that are tied up with the narrative of gold, glory and God uh, to the detriment of other equally important but overlooked elements of this history. Now, before we focus on these lesser studied aspects, can you for the benefit of our listeners, um, give a brief account of the traditional reductive elements of mining and its importance in the new world. So I should start by saying that reductive might not be fair. Um, I think this is often the case with our scholarship, that certain modes of inquiry get us to a certain point and then it's time to ask different kinds of questions. So I do think it's important to summarize some of the major threads of scholarship of the um, scholars who have come before me. And I think that there are two main threads, one of which has been incredibly helpful for my own work, and one of which is something that I think a lot of us in the study of colonial Latin America are trying to write our way around. So the first is the economic history element of mining, which is huge and deeply important. Um, And the second is the relationship between mining and narratives of the black legend. So on the economic history, um, there's a very compelling argument um, one that's easy to imagine in spatial terms about the importance of mining and, and metallurgy. Um, basically, my touchstones here are Dennis Flynn, who's trained as an economic historian, mm-hmm. and Arturo Hidades, who's trained as a historian and literary critic. Uh, trained as a literary critic, practices as a historian. Okay. Who, they've basically shown, I think, very convincingly that because bimetallic exchange rates in China. So in China, silver was worth twice as much as gold. And this is true roughly throughout East Asia, but China is the largest market. Um, Because those rates were the opposite of what they were in Europe, where gold was worth twice as much as silver, European traders and Iberian traders in particular, basically took silver from Potosi and Zacatecas, shipped it to East Asian markets, primarily China and Japan, mm-hmm. used profits from these bimetallic mismatches to then buy and sell people and goods throughout Africa and Europe, right. many of whom ended up making their way back to the Americas where they were enlisted in the silver economy. And the whole thing just kind of kept going. So Flynn and Hernandez show, I think, quite well that this is the moment in which we can really talk about, for the first time in recorded history, a truly integrated global economy. And it's really enabled because of colonial silver. Um, Silver is the currency that's used for all of these transactions. It's the kind of global standard. Um, But it's also the money. It's also the source of wealth. So there's a good reason why the economic history has dominated the way that we've talked about mining, because it's hugely important and global in scale. And also, frankly, correct. (laughs) There's a, it's a really important correction to our idea about colonial Latin America's place in the global economy in the 16th and 17th centuries. There's another long standing thread of the historiography that I think it's not as helpful. Um, and this is, I think what your question was getting at and what, um, what I refer to in my own scholarship when I reference that very pithy quotation about gold, God and glory. Um, and this is the idea that all of the excesses and abuses that are associated with the Spanish Empire in The famous America, Black Legend, yes. <laughs> the Landa Negra, exactly. That Potosi, with its cruelty, with its wretched deprivation, its inhumanity, its exploitation of native labor, of African laborers, is really the heart of the, the Black Legend. And in this, we can look to Spanish authors and artists for promoting this story. Um, Quevedo has this 
devastating poem in which he talks about Silva a una mina. Um, he says that basically American silver sangras las venas del metal luciente. Um, we find governors of Potosí who talk about it being un pueblo levantado tumultuariamente por la codicia al pie de la riqueza que descubrió una casualidad. Um, a town raised in tumult at the foot of wealth discovered by an accident. Um, di or discovered Extraordinary by... Extraordinary description, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just absolutely brutal stuff in terms of how they think about what was happening in Potosí. Partly because it was brutal. Mm. Um, and also partly because the story has emphasized so much the flows of silver rather than the knowledges that were required to actually produce that silver. Right. Um, these ideas are perpetuated in modern scholarship too. Probably the most, well, the most important historian, uh, social historian of mining in colonial Latin America through the 80s and the 90s was Peter Bakewell. Yeah. His work remains foundational in our field. Um, and even he writes about the similarities between what he calls the Iberians' success in mining, and this is a quote, and the unparalleled miscegenation that they set in motion. He thinks that these have common origins in aggressive Iberian colonizing energy combined with America's relative geographical, political, and biological openness compared with most of the non-European world. Right. So this narrative about the black legend and its relationship to mining um, comes from primary sources in the period, comes from political figures in the period, and is also perpetuated you know, by us. Yes. <laughs> um, and partly with, you know, with good reason. Like Potosi was an absolutely wretched, brutal place. But it was also a place where people chose to be, given the constraints that they had um, with which to make choices about their labor and how to provide for their families. So I think that these are um, not, it's not totally fair to call them reductive, um, but maybe they've been, they've gotten us to a certain point and now it's time to ask different kinds of questions about the history of mining. Yeah. But even if it's not reductive, I mean, the narrative of gold and silver mining in Spanish America seems to be almost entirely negative, doesn't it? Um, is it accurate to suggest that this negative narrative is justified or is that a gross oversimplification? I mean, to be a classic academic, I think it's a little bit of both. Yes, it is justified. This was an absolutely brutal industry. Um, it was responsible for the deaths of thousands of indigenous and mixed race and African people. Um, as well as colonial subjects. It was also a, a choice that people made. Um, so I think it, it can't be all negative and it also can't be all positive. Um, after the podcast, I'm going to share with some of your listeners that a few of the images from the John Carter Brown Library that have, yeah. um, from the primary, well, digitized by the JCB, but from the era, that have helped to kind of give some coherence to this idea about the the depravity of the mining industry. And I think they'll be really interested to see the range of, of iconographic interpretations um, that have led to some of the simplification and actually how some of these texts um, overlap with other ideas about race in Spain. So one of the books that I'm going to put out is uh, one of the very first texts printed by the Ottoman Empire. It's a Arabic translation of Lopez de Gomera's Historia de las Indias. An Ottoman translation? I had no idea there was an Ottoman translation. <laughs> I didn't either until I saw it at the JCB. Um, it was in Constantinople. It's published in um, the Western calendar year of 1730. And there's a, it's an amazing image. There's a star in what is the viewer's upper right-hand corner. Um, and there's, we see the city of Potosí uh, with two male subjects in the front bowing before a king. Um, and in Quevedo's poetry, he also talks about the kind of Moorish threat around silver. Um, so I think some of the, the language uh, and the fear that Europeans had about silver from the Indies reflects all kinds of existing ideas about race and religion. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Now, so let's go back to the economic aspect just very briefly. Um, so 86 million kilos of silver... Um, were produced in Spanish-American economy between 1492 and 1810, which is an extraordinary amount. And it linked America with the rest of the world. Now, we know that the impact of silver and silver mining in Spanish America was 
profound and manifold, uh, particularly from an economic point of view, as we have said. Um, it had an enormous impact in Spain, American silver, as well as Europe, the New World and Asia. Can you expand on this? So there was, um, there's one example that I always like to give to show how American silver um, fits into or fit into some of the political, economic and religious problems that early modern Europe is sifting its way through. And I think one of the best examples comes from the Thirty Years' War. So this is this um, massive war that unfolds almost over almost all of Central and Western Europe between 1618 and 1648. You have Catholic Spain fighting against Protestant Europe, which was formerly part of the, I mean, basically the Haps, two sides of the Habsburg Empire, which are now divided, yeah. which had been united in the previous century, are now fighting against each other. So in this war, Spain uses American silver, essentially, to finance all of its military expenses. Um, and it wasn't just because they found greater volumes of silver in the New World at this time. It was because they had, the crown had worked with German agents in Almaden um, to transfer tech ideas of, new ideas about amalgamation to Mexico in the mid-16th century, um, where colonial refiners developed a remarkably more effective way of producing silver by amalgamating silver with mercury, um, which allowed them to treat all kinds of ores rather than just relying on smelting, which can only work on really high-grade ores. So because of these technology transfers um, from some of the same people they end up fighting against um, 100 years later, Spain is able to import greater volumes of silver into Europe that can finance its military um, in the kind of warfare that believers felt would restore true harmony to the world. Yeah. At the same time, the Protestant side of the Habsburg Empire is mining mercury from Idrija and using that, selling that mercury to Spain, not directly, but through Italian brokers. So mercury is the main reagent being used by refiners in the New World to produce American silver. Hmm. They were getting some of their mercury from Almaden, some from Huancavelica, and some from Idrija. So you basically have Spain using American silver to finance its fight against Austria. Mm -hmm. Austria selling mercury to Spain so that Spain can make silver so that it can finance its fight. Mm, mm, okay. <laughs> They're using American silver in two different ways. And the fact that there was such demand for the silver to support war against each other, essentially. It also had a huge effect on early American society, um, both on colonial settlers and indigenous populations, didn't it? Yes. And to that group, we would also need to add African and African descendants. Well, um, of course, yeah. So one, I think one good example of the shift that colonial society went through, all actors of colonial society, is in the Mita. So in under the Inca Empire, there was a, a Mita, which the Spanish Empire very um, closely in lexical terms approximated as Mita. So there was this great study published in Science in 2003 that showed how the establishment of the Inca Empire around 1400 increased silver refining rates in Potosí. So in the pre-Hispanic period, Andean miners used wind ovens that are called huayrachinas, mm -hmm. um, which mean either wind huayra plus ventilate, like chi is an activating principle, um, but some linguists think that it refers to a feminine grammatical marker because the word Tina is also the word for woman in Quechua. Yeah. So um, in any event, the white Chinas were basically portable ovens made from clay that had holes that would allow for ventilation. Um, so people would place the ovens on the top of mountains such that currents would go through and basically heat the coals, allow them to process the metals. So this kind of oven really only works on a lead silver alloy that's called soroches, which mm -hmm. is derived from the quechua sorochi, which means to drip because it, the metal had a really low melting point mm. um, relative to other kinds of ores that were they could not process in those ovens because they couldn't get them hot enough. So given that we know how the ores were processed and given that we know what kinds of metals Andean refiners were working with, um, Mark Abbott and Alexander Wolf figured that if they measured lead runoff in the lake around Potosí, they might be able to figure out what refining looked like before the arrival of the Spaniards. And what they found is super interesting. Basically, levels rose, um, the level of lead runoff, because as you process the silver, you basically lose all the lead that's in this alloy. So the lead runoff in the lake 
was really high around 1000 AD, which is the height of Tuaniku. Um, then it drops for about 1000 to 1400, which corresponds to the lack, uh, the kind of lag, time lag between the Tuaniku culture and the start of the Inca Empire. And then after 1400, the deposits spike again, which suggests that the Inca were then instructing refiners in Potosi to process greater amounts of silver um, as part of their tribute structures. Hmm. So basically, before, well before the arrival of the Spaniards, the Inca Empire has long-range and very well-established networks of tribute labor in and around Potosi. Um, so Andean miners were very used to the concept of tribute labor. This wasn't something that would be unfamiliar. It wouldn't be something they would, that they would oppose in principle because it was already part of daily life. Right. But they did make some changes under in the shift from Incaic Empire to Hispanic Empire. So one thing we know is that under the Inca Empire, Mitayos, Indios who were part of the Mita, took turns. So whole families would usually move to the mines um, during the Mita rotation, which would roughly correspond to wet season, dry season for planting. So during, when, when certain mitayos were away, other people in the community would cultivate their crops to make sure that you know, they had food when they returned from their turn. Mm -hmm. So it was, even though some, only some people were working in the mita at any one time, it was really the entire community that was kind of participating in this structure of tribute labor. But under the Hispanic Empire, it was a cash-based system. So miners who were really good, who had high skills in mining or, or metallurgy, could hire other people to replace them to serve in the, the Hispanic Mita. Mm -hmm. So Mita workers earned, like unskilled Mita workers, earned between 13 and a half and 17 and a half reales uh, per week. Okay. And if you were hired to replace someone, that you were usually paid about four reales a week. So it's a pretty good salary bump, essentially. And if you were hiring yourself out to a mine owner or a refinery owner, you would earn a lot more than that 20, those 21 reales. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as the system shifted into this cash-based um, mode of dealing with, of organizing tribute labor, it also severed the agricultural and communal ties that had formed a really important part of the logic uh, of tribute labor, the logic and sort of real spiritual cosmovision element of tribute labor, and shifts it into something that's explicitly based on cash and earning potential tied to your skills as a miner or a refiner, tied to your degree of technical knowledge. It's also, I should point out that in addition to whatever they could earn in cash, uh, workers who hired themselves out usually had one day of the work week that for which their labor was their own. So they would work for their amo for five days. And then on day six, under a system that was called in the Andes, Cacheo, and in, the, in New Spain, Pepena, Whatever you mined on that day was yours to keep. Right. So what we think happened is that miners would often kind of set aside really good quality ore um, during the week. And then on day six, when it was their turn, they would take all that um, for themselves. And what I mean when I say good quality ore is the kinds of really high-grade stuff like soroches that couldn't be treated with mercury, but were actually better processed through traditional Andean modes of smelting. So in the Andes, it looks like as men shift into this wage-based cash economy, they reserve their cacheo earnings for female processors. So they would, on day six, they would give the ores to women who ran guaidas or tocochimbos, which were small ovens that were placed right outside the house. Right. Um, and in New Spain, there's something similar um, that happens in it's similar in the sense that miners seem to avoid choosing ores that would require going through Iberian networks of amalgamation, and they pick ores that were that they would then sell to African refiners who used handheld bellows outside of Zacatecas. Right. Um, so in both systems, you have important shifts in tribute labor that happen with multiple ethnic and uh, racial groups. You also see changes in gender relations, and you see some continuities with earlier ideas about tribute labor, but also some pretty substantial changes as well. Right, okay. Now, you also argue, of course, that um, silver had a very important effect upon language and culture, such as how the language of silver mining uh, shaped scientific ideas and social categories. Can, can you explain this? 
Because this is something that's completely unknown to me, I have to say. <laughs> no, no, I think that's exactly, this is exactly what I'm, I'm arguing, um, that you really can't have large-scale changes in economics and gender relations and multi-ethnic racial relations, hmm. labor relations, uh, without also seeing changes in how people talk about what's happening. I don't know whether this analogy will resonate with your listeners, but what I usually tell my students is that the relationship between the language of mining and the colonial Americas uh, and the language of everyday life is kind of like how we have a lot of analogies about cars and technology in contemporary speech in the U.S. So even though very few people still drive standards, um, it's not uncommon to hear the expression like shift into high gear. Right. Okay. Uh, right. My students, the car analogy, even though the technology has changed, we still use the language. Um, or you hear someone say like, oh, yeah, that boyfriend's an upgrade. Oh, OK. Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> using using the language of technology to talk about things that they're that are happening in their daily life. That lives. language we are familiar with. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it's a. I think actually it's a very human thing. Yeah. Um, that we think that the language of science is going to, and technology is going to look so totally different than the language of religion or language of daily life. But the borders are very fluid. Yeah. So as a lit scholar, I'm not good at showing causation. I don't know whether people change their language in response to changes in the silver industry or whether changes in the silver industry happened because people were changing their language and their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly rely on historians basically to be able to show change over time. Um, but what I, what lit scholars can do is show a relationship between these two or to show that there was something that's worth historians digging into. Um, so I think that's what my work has done. I'm sort of that first pass because pretty early on we see that the language of colonial life is also the language of mining and metallurgy. So in the Andes, metals were organized into castas de metales, which sounds a lot like the sistema de castas that were developed into ways of classifying people into different racial categories. Um, the most famous book of mining that was pub- that was written, not published, but written in the Andes in the colonial era was the Arte de los Metales, which is by a priest from Andalusia named Alvaro Alonso Barba. And he has this really fascinating tripartite system that groups ores into pacos, mulatos, y negrillos. And he's not the only author in this time period um, to use or to describe amalgamation or smelting of metales mulatos and negrillos in these terms, um, in Potosí. We find them in mining dictionaries. We find them in instructional manuals that fathers write to their sons. But his book was absolutely the most widely read and widely translated of the books that came from this period. It's also the kind of language that suggests that the mine is having feminine qualities waiting to be, quote unquote, exploited. Is this a common theme in the vocabulary of the era? This is a fascinating point. So it's absolutely true that mines are gendered feminine in Spanish and Portuguese. La mina, a mina. Yeah. Um, but it's also true that linguistic gender doesn't always align with cultural gender. Yeah. So when we talk about cultural gender, we're, we're usually talking about normative descriptions of how women and men should behave and individual responses to those social prescriptions. There, um, there's a great book chapter by Margaret J. Osler in which she says that basically this 30-year debate about whether Baconian metaphors about subordinated nature and the feminization of nature um, the kind of vexing of nature and her secrets actually marginalize women from scientific inquiry has been muddled by the fact that the main interlocutors in this debate are Anglophones who don't have a language of, that includes grammatical gender. Um, English used to have grammatical gender, but it was lost in the gender shift that happened between the medieval period and the 17th century. So precisely in the moment that I'm studying um, is when English loses its um, habit of classifying botanical matter, natural matter, as he or she, and instead replaces it with it. So this is the shift from she into it, um, is one of the elements um, that marks the, the gender shift in English. Um, English also loses different kinds of verb endings, noun declensions, a whole range of things, most of which are tied to changing ideas about the animacy of matter. 
is a rock alive, is a metal a living thing? Mm. So it's really interesting um, to see how ideas about linguistic gender shift to accord uh, and align with ideas about nature um, in the early modern period. So we see linguistically gendered elements all over French and Spanish texts. And then we also see English authors who struggle to translate those into their into the target language. Of course, um, yeah. Um, all, a lot of this, I should say, has been the work has been done by Anne Curzon in a book that I think the title is "The Gender Shift of Early Modern English." It's one of those super clear titles that is that says exactly what the book will be about, <laughs> and it is a phenomenal book. Um, so we see, we absolutely see a feminization of minds linguistically or at the lexical level, but it's not always clear whether that maps onto the cultural level. And in the Andes, it's even more confusing or more complex, I should say, because much of the scholarship that's been used to say that traditional Andean ideas suggest that minds are feminine is from oral interviews with 20th century miners in Bolivia. And while on the one hand, it is true that indigenous communities work very hard to preserve the traditions and worldviews and, and cosmovisions that are important to them. It's also true that people change over time, just like any human society. So we can't necessarily take what modern indigenous miners say about the past as the absolute way things work. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it, it's it's interesting. And it, it actually, I mean, it has a whole range of implications. Um, and it actually reminded me of that famous passage from uh, Jose de Acosta, the Jesuit writer Jose de Acosta, his, his incredible analogy in the Historia Natural y Moral de las Indias, which I talked about briefly in the last podcast with uh, Ricardo Padron, the natural and moral history of the Indies. My colleague. Your colleague. Yes, indeed. Uh, in the previous uh, podcast, we talked about Acosta's book, but um, he also talks about mines and the richness of the mines in America. And he he compares mines in America to a man marrying off his quote unquote um, ugly daughter with a generous dowry, which is an extraordinary analogy. And um, I'll read it out. It'll just take a moment or two, but it's it's an incredible analogy. He says, it is a circumstance worthy of much consideration that the wisdom of our eternal Lord has enriched the most remote pans of the world, inhabited by the most uncivilized people, and has placed there the greatest number of mines that have ever existed, in order to invite men to seek out and to possess those lands, and coincidentally, to communicate their religion and the worship of the true God to men who do not know it. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Hence we see that the lands in the Indies that are the richest in mines and wealth have been those most advanced in the Christian religion in our time. And thus the Lord takes advantage of our desires to serve his sovereign ends. In this regard, a wise man once said that what a man does to marry off an ugly daughter is to give her a large dowry. This is what God has done with this rugged land, endowing it with great wealth in mines, so that whoever wished to find it could by this means. Hence, there is a great abundance of mines in the Indies, mines of every metal, copper, iron, lead, tin, quicksilver, silver and gold. So in other words, as a reward for converting uh, the indigenous populations, God had given the Spanish uh, all of these incredible mines or the large dowry, which is, as I said, is an incredible uh, analogy. I mean, obviously wrong on so many levels, but uh, very, very interesting. But what's fascinating to me is that this kind of language usage is much more expansive than I'd previously imagined before I started reading for this uh, podcast. And it incorporates notions of love, desire, gender, sexuality, as well as race, race, ethnicity and so on, which you already touched upon, which is not something that, uh, for example, you and I, both who study certain aspects of the history of science, we would not really expect this of Spanish scientific enterprise in the 16th century, considering its its utilitarian nature. Um, why do you think that mining uh, lends itself so readily to these kinds of ideas? That's a great question. If I'm allowed to, to be polemical, I would say that I think <laughs> I think all forms of human inquiry are shaped by the world that we live in. And science in the colonial period or the early modern era and in our own time is informed by political structures, economic policies, religious frameworks, uh, law, philosophical ideas about what is and isn't possible, as well as constraints. 
Um, just like my project was kind of inspired by my time teaching in a mine, I partly got this idea in grad school because my roommate was a was doing her PhD in cell biology. Mm. And it seemed like she spent as much time writing grant proposals as she did in lab. And so I asked her about it and she said that that was absolutely true. And that in order to secure additional funding with um, government agencies like the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, you have to continuously publish results. Um, which is very difficult to do because research is uneven. Whether you're a historian or a literary scholar or a scientist, it just is. Sometimes you have something that's worth saying and sometimes you don't find the document that you need or the document says something different or you get a result that you didn't think you were going to get. You need to run it again. It still doesn't say what you thought it would. But when you have to continually publish to have support for your work, that kind of political and economic pressure influences the way that we talk about our science and actually practice science. Hmm. Uh, because you can't do that work if you don't have money to do it. So I think um, the same, anything that we might say about non-scientific pressures on scientific communications today and, and the way that we conduct science um, is also true for the colonial era, that they really were not all that different. Um, and in this respect, I think the language of science in the colonial era, and here I include the sort of high stuff that you work on, the um, navigation, cartography, the natural uh, philosophic traditions, as well as the vernacular sciences like mining and agriculture, and, um, even medicine. I would, following Pamela Smith, I would group as a, a vernacular science in this point. Um, both of which are connected by a kind of shared alchemical vocabulary and set of ideas about transformation and transmutation by modes of analogical thinking. Um, but my sense is that, especially in the vernacular sciences, people drew from the language of daily life, which mm. means ideas about politics, ideas about sovereignty, expressions of, of religious faith. Um, so far, I've only looked at the vernacular stuff for mining and metallurgy and a little bit of medicine to write the fourth chapter of my book, which is on iron and has taken me into Monardes and Garcia de Horta. But I'd be really interested to see what people find in uh, navigation manuals, astronomical tables, um, treatises, what you find in the learned sciences and if there's a similar language that or if there's a similarly culturally rich language that emerges from these books. Now, I'm also struck by this notion, which you explained a little bit earlier. These are castas de metales or casts of metals. Can you explain this uh, stratification and how it was influenced by Spanish attempts to apply racial categories in America? So this was one of the first things that convinced me that it was important to study the language of mining. But it took me, frankly, an embarrassingly long time to figure out what was happening because Barba has a really complex way of explaining mineral classification. So in this, all of this comes from book two. In chapter two, he explains how refiners ought to be and what they should know. Cual debe ser y que ha de saber. And then the next chapter is titled Del conocimiento de los metales y diferencias que de ellos hay. So already there's this weird division between different kinds of knowing, saber and conocer. And then things get weirder once he actually describes what you have to know. He says that it's impossible to describe in words something that can only be seen by the eye, but he's going to try it anyway. And he writes that there are three suertes, or kinds, of metals, which are called pacos mulatos y negrillos. And he tells us that paco comes from la lengua general, and that it means red. And this is true. La lengua general? La lengua general, in this case, is quechua. So this is a Spanish translation of the quechua term runasumi, which means, like, the language that's spoken throughout the region. So even the expression la lengua general is a translation from Quechua. So, and it's true, like Paco is a, a hispanized form of the Quechua Paco, which means reddish. But Barba says that green copper bearing ores are also included in this category of reddish metals. Right. Um, then he goes to mulatos, which he says are un medio entre Paco y negrillo, and that they're de color vaso, the color of a spleen. So I think it's important that the color names and the description comes first for reasons that I'll explain in a little bit. And negrillos are the last group. 
And he says that they're named for their color, but not all black metals are negrillos. So color provides the logic of the names of the categories, but not the actual color of the ores themselves within the category. So there's something really interesting that's happening here. And to, figure, to try to figure out what was happening, I looked at different translations of Barba to see how other early moderns would have understood these terms. They were no help at all. So Edward Montague was the first one to translate the uh, Barba's book. And he said that mulatos, and he keeps it in the source language, but puts it in italics, is a color. Um, you can't hear it, but I'm pronouncing color with a U because I'm quoting from the text. Is a color... Old English text, of course. <laughs> <laughs> is a color between the paco and the negrillo. So he replaces the idea of un medio, a middle way, with a color. And then he goes on to say that that color is brown, not splain-hued. And uh, the German translator used Montague as the source, not Barba. So his translation is exactly the same. We get um, farba, uh, mulatos are farba, a color, and they're brown. The French translator seems to have been working with a slightly different edition of the text. There was a bootleg edition that came out of Cordoba after Barbas. Um, and he does not provide a color, so he doesn't translate the word basso. And he just says that instead of un medio, they're un millo. Um, so he kind of preserves the idea of there being like a way, a thing between the two. And the problem is that basso doesn't mean brown, or brown is one possibility, but not the only one. Um, colonial era dictionaries provide, say, like John Minshew's, the dictionary that's digitized on the Nuevo Tesoro, says that you can, that basso is a sad color, a little black, um, dark. Basically, what we see is that each translator, what Barba had expressed in humoral terms, like basso, the spleen, which produces the black bile that makes people melancholy, what we see is that each translator interprets the, the idea behind the color of the word mulato in a way that accords with his own language community and view of the world. None of them really translate the passage in the way that Barba meant. And what's especially interesting is that even though the word mulato exists in Spanish and French, none of the translators use the term that existed in their languages, and instead they keep it in the source language, um, sometimes putting it in italics or in capital letters, which suggests that they recognize that there was something in this description that they were not able to translate. So even after looking at the translations of Barba, I mean, within uh, the hundred years that follow his publication, there are about 20 different editions that come out in six major European languages. So even after looking at the translations, it's still not clear what's happening. And it was only when I read a dictionary about mining terms underground that it finally made sense. So underground, miners classified metal by depth, not by color. Pacos were closest to the surface, negrillos are at the deepest levels, and mulatos are this transitionary zone of about two or three body lengths, or estados. Um, so there are lots of different ways that Andean speakers could have said that something was in the middle. They would have used a phrase like chalpimita or pactasmita, which means thing that's in between. And what I think happened is that Spaniards said, no, 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 we have our own way of saying something in between. We call those mulatos. So what we see in this expression of mulatos negrillos is a mistranslation into racialized Spanish terms of Andean spatial concepts underground and classifications. So that is, I think, what's happening. Um, Perfect. So can you tell us about the analogies of love and desire then to explain technical processes of classification and incorporation? And were these analogies useful in your opinion? So the gap between the language of Spanish colonial sources and their logic of metalwork is another place where we see how indigenous epistemes influence colonial technologies. Um, Spanish writers, like their peers in England, tend to cite the same authorities. We get all Empedocles, Plato, Aristotle, Pliny. Um, according to the logic of antiquity, you know this from your work, like attracts like and unlikes repel unlike. Mm, yeah. um, but because... So love basically draws similar things into being and hate divides them. And because no matter is ever created or destroyed, hate is what causes matter to change shape or come into being. Hate being the source of opposites, um, of contraries. Love cannot actually generate new forms. Only unlikes like hot and cold or male and female can do that. And I'm like simplifying this like crazy, but this is basically how 
um, colonial metallurgists understood these traditions from antiquity. This is why English writers would say that you have to pair a hot soil and a cold seed because only those opposite energies can actually cause botanical matter to change shape. But something different happens in Spanish books about amalgamation, which depends on the pairing of chemically related silver and quicksilver. Colonial writers say that they're citing the same authorities and they celebrate how similar silver and mercury are. They talk about their sharing analogia, amistad. But then they say that these metals love each other and more than love, that they desire each other. There's this physician in Mexico, uh, Juan de Cárdenas, who writes this amazing treatise um, describing Bartolomé de Medina's patio method of amalgamation. And he, in this, he, to explain how silver and mercury actually bind, he says, se aman y apetecen la plata y la soque. And that through this love, se abrazan. So this language of love um, suggests that it's not difference or opposites, but actually sameness and similarity that becomes a source of desire, that becomes a source that enables the conversion of matter. This is 100% against the sources that they cite, um, <laughs> right? They say they're using the logic of antiquity, but actually their language suggests something else. And we find the same kinds of terms in Barba about seam and not seapetesan. That is straight up Cardenas. But Barba uses similar terms about love and desire. So um, there are some historical reasons why the terms in Potosí would echo those of New Spain. Basically, the technology, uh, the industrial scale technology was developed in central Mexico in the 1550s and then transferred to Alto Peru in the 1570s. Um, but I think that there are other reasons why we would see the language of mining and metallurgy in the New World depart from the language that's used in Spain. And it has to do with this mixture of indigenous knowledges, of African knowledges, and of hybrid colonial knowledges. And so in their writing, we see that even as authors cite the same traditional authorities, they understand some of these foundational scientific terms about similarity and difference, terms that are also social in very different ways. Now, uh, you've noted that um, by focus on macro level structures such as global trade, which we have spoken about already, um, we tend to overlook local interpersonal perspectives of the miners themselves, particularly the indigenous miners uh, and their relationships to their communities and colonial settlers. Um, so what kind of research have you been engaged in to help shed light on these perspectives? My research is really slow and I basically just show up with a list of sources that I plan to consult and then I spend a long time reading them. And I read through all of them, even when I have the sense that a particular case isn't going to be helpful for what I'm looking for. Um, so I, in the Andes, I looked at a bunch of mining disputes. And one of the benefits of looking at legal cases is that um, legal language is basically all the same. So even if... Um, it, like, it's supposed to be boilerplate. It's not supposed to be imaginative. A historian colleague said... Well, that's why you don't have to really read it, because it's always the same. And I said, no, that's exactly why it's great, because if I find something interesting in the language here, it means that it's probably in a bunch of cases that we don't know about or those have, that have gone missing. So in um, one case, I found that the Spanish colonial official described an indigenous woman as mujer, like describing her in the terms of civil status as wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, an Andean miner who testified in the case said that it was India using a very like ethnic, ethnically specific identifier. Yeah. So then that made me realize that maybe this has happened in lots of different legal cases, that there were actually a lot of indigenous women whose presence had been obscured by these civil categories of wife rather than ethnically specific categories of Indian. Yeah, yeah. So that's part of what my research does. I look at boilerplate stuff that's not supposed to tell us anything new and I see if it does. Um, I work mostly on the Andes. There's a scholar who works on women miners in Mexico, Dana Velasco Murillo, and her book has just come out and she's done exactly the same thing, basically showing how indigenous women are all over the history of mining in Zacatecas, just not in the way that you might expect. Really? That's interesting. It's super cool stuff. The, the book, um, she was here, she's here too. So I just saw her maybe two weeks ago. Um, she just got her copy of the book. So um, 
I'm, I can be excused for not having read it yet. <laughs> okay. So the extent of women's involvement in uh, mining then, um, is that kind of the kind of information that you have been able to uncover? Yeah, so I found this really great case. Um, actually, I found over 100 cases of women miners, not really by looking for them, but just by taking a slightly literary approach to this dry, boring boilerplate language. The same thing I did for dry, boring scientific language. Yeah. Turns out it's not so dry and boring. <laughs> there are a bunch of really interesting ideas embedded in there. Um, I published the list of the files in an appendix uh, in ethnohistory, because I won't have time to work with all these cases, but I would really love for other people to do them. So I published them with the legajo and the dates and the major names of the people involved, as well as the regions. Fifteen so odd pages. Can... Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, that's no, it's it's yeah, but it, it, no, it makes fascinating reading for future researchers on the subject, and it seems like it's going to be very helpful. So yeah, <laughs> that's my goal. I really hope that it will encourage people to. I mean, now they don't have to find where the cases are located. Yeah, yeah. It makes it much easier. Look at them and and work with them. Um, So I'll I'll tell you about my favorite of those stories. Um, Is this Bartola Sisa? This is Bartola Sisa. She's my hero. I was shocked that I was the only person who, or that only one other person had written about this case. Um, Anne Zulawski mentions it in her book. Uh, but the book is about market women. It's really about commerce, um, not about technical arts like mining. Um, and I think the Bartolo Sisa story gets like a page and a half in the book, and that's it. Um, and it's a phenomenal story. So around 1641, Bartolo Sisa moves with her very young son to Espiritu Santo, where she starts prospecting for silver mines. And I think that she moved there already with some skills because she found one pretty soon. And then she hired three Andean men to work for her. Yeah. Um, basically when they had, when the four of them had tunneled far enough down to be able to stake a claim, two of the men went to declare the discovery before colonial officials. And at this point, a Spaniard, Cristobal Cortes, who had been watching the whole thing, um, approached her and told her that imperial law did not allow women to own mines. Right. And she and but that he would help her file it in, under his name and then they could share the profits. And she didn't like this idea, but she thought it was the only way that she could actually earn a living from the mine. And she had a son to feed. So she agrees. Cotes blocks her from the site uh, and she promptly shows up and reports him to colonial officials who then investigate the case and conduct interviews with Cortes as well as with the miners who worked for her, took a statement from the protector of the Indians, yeah. uh, who spoke on behalf of Bartola Sisa. And then three days after the final witness testified, they ruled for her. And they said that she not only had the, the right to own the mine and to work it for herself, but also to expel anyone who didn't belong there. Um, this is one way in which legal language is actually incredibly useful. So when I was writing up the case for ethnohistory, one of the readers said, I mean, this is very interesting, but it's not representative, right? How many times did indigenous women actually win in colonial court? And I thought, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. So I shared the, the reader's concern about a representative sample with my friend David Chang. And he said, well, of course it's representative. Europeans tried to take Native people's stuff all the time, yeah. and Indigenous people found a wide variety of ways to resist that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's as representative as it gets. And I thought, yeah, David is absolutely right. Like, this is We have to change the way we think about terms like boilerplate and representative. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I've been able to do in terms of women miners and recovering some of their work. Fantastic. Okay, great. And despite evidence of women miners in the Andes, um, very little work has been done on their contributions. Why do you think this is? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, in a truly satisfying academic fashion, I will say that I don't really know, um, <laughs> other than it's sort of a problem of interstices. So not many people work on mining, um, maybe because they think the story has been told um, for some of the reasons that we've already discussed. And also because women's history is still told less often than men's, which is sometimes just called history. Yeah. Um, I think 
part of the problem <laughs> is that we have to follow our sources. And if they don't mention women or if women are obscured from the documentary record, then we just end up compounding the problem of archival silences in our own work. And also, yeah. like, ironically, yeah. making stories about the past that are biologically impossible. Um, like, I was not a great student in high school bio, but I'm pretty sure that no society could survive without a, some balance of men and women. And so in this idea <laughs> that we have about being faithful to our sources, we end up telling a story that is completely impossible. Um, so part of the problem is that we're trained yeah. to work with sources um, that obscure women in documents or in language. So in the Bartola Sisa case, the, uh, the colonial official refers to her as mujer, but like as in Cortes told her that um, she couldn't register the vein por ser mujer. But in his testimony, the Quechua speaking minor who testifies through uh, an interpreter says that, or is very specific and says that Cortes said, por ser India. Right? So part of the problem is that the language of colonial mm. sources has obscured evidence of indigenous women. Um, right. And part of the problem is that we're not looking for women in industries that are perceived to be male-dominated. Um, and this is another moment when I'm, I will ask for permission to be polemical. Um, I think there's an element of presentism or northernism um, in our work. So I think the, if some of the attitude is, if mining is so machista today, it must have been that way in the colonial period. Right, right. And Latin America, especially, could not have possibly been a place where indigenous women ran their own businesses under or above ground or got support from the colonial officials against male colonists to do so. So you're saying that modern machista culture, we're applying this to uh, pre-Columbian and early, early colonial indigenous society. Is that right? I think that's part of it. And I, I think we have that belief about the past. And so it means that we don't look for evidence of women's work in places like Potosi. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and part of the problem is this idea of, um, sort of Andean timelessness. Um, this idea that if, Andean, if women don't mine in indigenous communities now, it must have always been that way because indigenous communities don't change. Right, which is just completely bonkers. Like, obviously, they change like any other group. Some things change and some things stay the same. Yeah, yeah. So what kinds of problems exist in attempting to identify the extent of indigenous intellectual influence on mining and metallurgy? <laughs> so many. <laughs> <laughs> so one problem is that the Spanish Empire documented everything. I mean, you know this. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we do not suffer for documents. Right? No, indeed. But they didn't always write down the things that are important to us today, which I consider to be incredibly inconsiderate on their parts. And a lot of the documents are missing. So historians have worked very hard to document um, the history of the mining industry. And thanks to people like Peter Bakewell and Jimena Mendivacelli, Chris Lane, Heidi Scott, Kendall Brown, Clara Lopez Ventran, Jane Magnan, and Dana Velasco Murillo, um, we have a much better sense of what life looked like in silver mining communities. Um, but while census records and tribute tallies can tell us a lot about how to answer some questions, mostly about labor, they don't tell us a lot about ideas. Um, as a literary scholar, I'm trained to work mostly with language, so that's my contribution. Um, Heidi mm -hmm. is trained as a geographer, so she's done this great work on mapping underground space, Clara is really a labor historian, social historian, so she's looking at this phenomenal, like, the path of silver from Potosí to Radica. Um, Chris is writing a book about African minters in Potosí. Um, we each kind of have our own, our own way of trying to get at some of the questions that we haven't been able to answer yet. So all of us, we all have slightly different methodological trainings, disciplinary trainings that allow us to ask different questions, none of which have really been explored until now. Um, so in addition to what literary scholars and historians and historians of science are doing, there are also really interesting methods coming out of ethnohistory and archaeometallurgy. Um, and here we look at people like Pablo Cruz, Pablo Quispe, uh, Mary Van Buren, and Tristan Platt. Right. Okay. Very interesting. So how successful have you found these language methods to be? Well, you're interested in them, and you have a fantastic show with wonderful listeners. So I think extremely successful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it can answer some new questions, um, particularly because literary scholars haven't often looked at these materials. 
And historians, and especially historians of, of science, haven't often done discourse analysis on technical manuals. So it kind of falls in the middle in this unexplored territory, um, which requires that we develop collaborative methods. I, mean, I think that my work in looking at the the how Andean epistemes are translated out of um, lettered scientific works in 17th century Europe, I can answer some questions about how indigenous people contributed to the science of colonial silver. But I don't understand, I mean, I'm not very good at showing exactly when that happened or why people developed some of the languages that they did. Um, I, I, a language-based method can't really tell us anything about the contributions of African miners. Um, so that would be a major flaw with, or a, a problem with my work or a limitation. Um, which is partly why we have to all collaborate. There are some things that historians can do really well, and there are some things that let people can do. And I think that only by kind of combining our expertise and our trainings can we actually answer new questions. Right. Okay. Okay. So um, now you mentioned writers such as Alvaro Alonso Barba and Juan de Cárdenas. And Alvaro Alonso Barba, um, his work uh, was at the Art of Metal, um, it was translated into English in uh, 1670. Um, but as you mentioned, there are some problems in translation, of course. Um, can you describe some of these problems encountered by translators from Spanish when trying to explain these new techniques and ideas, as well as this idiomatic terminology that we've been talking about? Yeah, the terminology is incredibly difficult. Well, if translators got everything right, then I would not have a job. So I guess I should say that these mistranslations make on Um and that also they do, I think, provide a way to document the influence of people who wrote without letters, which is uh, Walter Mignolo's way of talking about Andean literacies and, and the knowledge is contributed by non-alphabetic authors. Um, I have to be really careful in answering this question because I have a history of going into too much detail about conchas. So it, I got a teaching award last year and I was supposed to make a brief speech and I had my partner and I organized it that morning. We practiced. This was for a group of prospective students and their parents, as well as current students. And I got up and just rambled about like way too much detail on conchos. Um, so I'm like to the point where it is now shorthand among my partner and Ricardo that full nerdiness is called full concho. Um, so I'm going to try to explain one of the difficulties of translation and be super concise. Barba ex um, explains to refiners why they have to add mercury in two rounds. And he says that if they add it all at once, this very heavy reagent will sink to the bottom of the mixing bin without actually incorporating any of the silver and will instead form a thick sediment. And his expression for this is, y mientras más fuerte, menos conchos se causarán. The word concho is derived from the Quechua conchu, which means drag or sediment. But translators in Europe weren't looking for evidence of Quechua etymologies and Quechua influence in these technological discourse. And they also had never seen the, this word before. So Edward Montague may be struggling with this concept of linguistic gender. Edward Montague is a translator of Barba, or Alvaro Barba. Yes. Alonso Barba. Montague is, is the first translator. So he does the English translation of 1670, mm. which is reprinted in 1674, and then becomes the source for the German translation of 1676. Right, right. Um, that German translation is then reprinted several times and is actually the source of the first book to be, the first edition of Barba printed in the New World which was from a pietist community of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, a book that became part of George Washington's library. Reading. Um, yeah, Barba has major circulation um, in the, the early modern period. He goes through, it's about 20 some odd editions in English, Spanish, French, German, and Latin in the hundred years that follow the publication of his book. And it's, it's really amazing considering that none of those readers would have had access to the kinds of metals that he's describing or the collaborative relationships with indigenous people that he describes in the book. Why were people so interested in learning about things that they couldn't possibly do? So Edward Montague, when he was translating the book into English, um, did not know what to do with this word concho. And so he translated it as concha, 
rendering it in English as oyster shell. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. the German translator does the same thing. And the, so conchos become Austerschalen in the German translation. Oyster shells, and yeah. We, we basically have this genealogy of mistranslation that shows how indigenous knowledges were translated out of lettered history in 17th century Europe, and also how we can now map them back into this history of intellectual exchange. So that's one way in which the problem of mistranslation allows us to actually document indigenous people's contributions. Right. So do you think, therefore, that um, comprehension of the new Spanish methods and terminology was was bound up inextricably with the need to understand indigenous and Creole systems of knowledge, caste, uh, sexuality and so on? Absolutely. And I think that because the translators in Europe weren't looking for evidence of indigenous people's contributions, they didn't find them. Um, in fact, they mistranslated out not only at the lexical level in terms of conchos, abrazar, which they never say embrace, um, but also in terms of what language they ascribe to the classification of metals. So Barba is very careful to say that the, the Paco Mulato Negrillo comes from la lengua general. And then he says that Paco means in this lengua general, Bermejo. So it's pretty clear that la lengua general cannot be Spanish because he wouldn't need to tell Spanish speakers what red means. Yeah. Right? But the translators, um, so Montague writes, nevertheless, the miners reduce these differences unto three general heads, which the Spaniards call pacos, mulatos, and negritos. So he replaces que llaman los mineros with which the Spaniards call, and he conflates la lengua general with Spanish, even though right, it would make right. no, span no sense for Spanish to be la lengua general of Potosí, given the context of the passage. Okay, okay. So, Basically, in this process, the translators reveal themselves as very human. They translate the text in a way that reflects and then helps to confirm and give organizing power to their beliefs about the world. Um, translation is still incredible. Mean, I think only by translating can you appreciate the difficulty of trying to do something like this. Yeah. So I teach a class on colonial translation, and we spend a lot of time working with 17th century dictionaries because it's really hard to only use the words that were available to writers at the time um, or the ideas that existed within a region or a worldview that's not your own. Uh, yeah. My students' work is now up on the Early America's Digital Archive. So we've published over 10 student translations and annotations of primary sources that are free and available for anyone to use. Oh, excellent. Um, that's wonderful. And we will provide a link to the Early America's Digital Archive with the images that will accompany this podcast. So in this sense, were non-Spanish attempts to understand these new methodologies and technologies doomed to fail, do you think? I don't know. I mean, certainly at the lexical level. Um, but in practice, th that's a really good question. I feel like I've also answered all of your questions with, hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, amalgamation technologies did make their way to the, like, as a material thing, did make their way to the British Empire. And they were used in Australia and Nevada until 1900. They actually had a very long history of practice um, in, in language communities that would have had a very hard time understanding Montague's translation. So somewhere or another, the ideas did make it to other parts of the world in, in forms that were put into practice. Um, Herbert Hoover, who was a mining engineer and also president of the United States who helped to negotiate the borders mm -hmm. of Chile, Peru, and Bolivia and make the copper mines of what were Bolivia now belong to Chile and make Bolivia into a landlocked country, um, translated uh, it, for the first time into English, Georges Agricola's De Re Metallica with his wife, who was also a geologist. Um, and they have, right. I mean, it's a massive 500-page volume that is almost more footnote than it is text. It is a, a really impressive work. Um, but they have a three-page footnote about the history of amalgamation um, in which they talk about the long use of amalgamation in um, 19th century um, the U.S., Australia. And they note that... Uh, amalgamation developed in 18th century Germany, um, not Latin America. 
What's interesting is that in the 18th century, even miners in Latin America believed that the technology developed in Germany. So we find writers like Felipe de la Torre Barillo y Lima, who was based in Peru, um, Manuel Roses, Juan Ordonez Montalvo, who argue that um, mercury and silver need to be understood as fundamentally different things rather than fundamentally same things because one is solid and one is liquid. They also stop using verbs like abrazar and instead they use agrega, se incorpora. Um, so the, in the 18th century, there's this very di different way of thinking about metals and mining in Latin America and also in Europe. Okay, so finally then, um, what do you think have been the most important changes that have emerged in our understanding of mining and metallurgy in early Spanish America? And how do you envisage future research and what it will uncover? There's a lot to say on that. Um, I guess I would say that one important takeaway would be to see extractive industries like mining as sites of knowledge production and technology transfers. Um, between communities whose voices haven't always been heard in the history of science and technology, and that these sites are not just about extraction and exploitation. Um, there are elements of coercion, as with lots of labor conditions in the early modern period and our own time, but it's also true that people developed skills, made choices about their labor based on what they could get for those skills, and used those skills to provide for their families. So these aren't just stories about extraction and exploitation, although they are that too. But they're also about how people negotiate life on their own terms, given the options that are available to them at the time. I think another important takeaway would be the importance of actually looking at language as a site that we can use to create an archive. Um, we see pretty clearly that humans kind of got in our own way about mistranslating texts based on what we thought about indigenous people at the time. Um, there's even more of a history of this. So it, as late as 1640, writers in Europe are continuing to exist that you cannot possibly amalgamate silver with mercury on a large scale, um, which is really kind of impressive because it takes a very special kind of person to believe that an old theory still holds true in the face of hundreds of years of evidence um, in, right, right. in the form of flows of silver from the New World. But for writers like Gabrielle Platz, it was easier to think that America was filled with tremendous natural wealth than to believe that indigenous and mixed race peoples had helped to create a new technology. Um, in terms of new directions in the field, I, I think one thing we need to know a lot more about is what mining and metallurgy looked like before the arrival of the Spaniards. Um, and for that, we would really need archeologists. Um, it would be very interesting then to see how miners adopted some of those traditions to meet new realities like they did with the Mita. Um, and that I think if there were a little bit more work from archaeology, historians could then jump in and do their part. Um, the possibility of Tocochimbo ovens as one of those sites of accommodation is, I think, really intriguing. And I'm um, really curious to find out what Mary Van Buren will, will uncover. Um, I would also like to, I think that we need a lot more work on African miners and refiners. So we haven't talked about Africans very much today because in terms of silver mining, they don't have a huge presence um, in the way that I'm studying silver. In my book, uh, chapter three, which is about copper, has a lot more about African miners than it does about indigenous miners. Right, right, right. Which incorporates the whole narrative of slavery, of course, then. Yes. Um, Chris is, I think Chris's book on African minters will be a really important contribution to this. So I'm curious to see what he finds too. Alison Bigelow, thank you very much. Thank you, Edward.